Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to First Move. We're kicking off today's show with breaking news out of Hong Kong, where protesters took to the streets fighting against a highly unpopular bill that would allow people arrested in Hong Kong to be extradited back to mainland China. Tens of thousands of protesters marched against that proposed law, bringing Hong Kong's financial district to a standstill and forcing the legislature there to postpone a planned debate on that bill. Police, as you can see there in pictures that taken earlier, used tear gas, rubber bullets, water cannons and pepper spray to quell the demonstrations. The first time, in fact, that rubber bullets have been used in Hong Kong in decades. Police called today's protests, quote, a riot situation. It's no surprise, of course, as you can see, uh, judging by those pictures, that it did see and trigger some selling pressure in regional stock markets. Let me give you a look at what we saw over in the Asia session. Hong Kong's Hang Seng index falling some 1.7 percent amid fears that investor confidence could be dented and that businesses based or operating there could perhaps relocate in the future if they're worried about this, uh, the law passing and uh, what it means afterwards. Borrowing costs spiked and the Hong Kong dollar rose to its highest level of the year. What about here in the United States? Well, stocks look set for a lower open after closing slightly lower on Tuesday. The Dow breaking a six-day winning streak. We've also had U.S. inflation numbers released this morning. They were in line with estimates still on a year-on-year basis below the Fed's target. Plenty more discussion on that later on in the show. But for now, I want to get straight over to Hong Kong for the latest there. Pro-democracy lawmakers lashed out at Hong Kong's chief executive during a press conference a short while ago, accusing Carrie Lam of selling out Hong Kong and of treating its people like the enemy. Matt Rivers joins us from near the Legislative Council building where the debate was supposed to take place. Matt, great to have you with us. And of course, we can still see crowds of people behind you, actually, in those pictures. Just describe what we saw over the past few hours and what's going on right now. Yeah, well, well, Julia, this has been a day that started out with peaceful protests. Those protests then turned pretty violent, and now things have kind of calmed down again. The question is what happens as we go through the overnight hours. It was this morning here in Hong Kong that legislators were set to take up the second reading, another round of debate on that extradition bill that you were just talking about. But tens of thousands of protesters showed up, as we expected, and legislators actually postponed that, uh, that debate. What happened around 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon here in Hong Kong, though, is that things did turn violent. Protesters were throwing things at police. Police started deploying tear gas canisters. They started using rubber bullets. And things escalated quite quickly. And that's where we are right now. So basically, right down the road here behind me, there are thousands of people here. This is the heart of, of Hong Kong's financial district. This is where embassies are. This is where major businesses are located. And this road has been completely shut off by protesters. Now, if we bring it back here, you can see that the cops right now actually just took a dinner break. 
break. They're pretty relaxed right now. Uh, and, and I think the best way I would describe this is perhaps the eye of the storm, the calm before the storm, maybe, because all of those people, thousands of people that have been erecting barricades, makeshift barricades in the street with anything that they can find over the last maybe two hours or so, you would imagine that the police are not going to let them stay there forever. So for now, they are. Maybe they're trying to wait them out, see if they'll disperse on their own. That's probably not going to happen. And so then the question becomes, well, what happens next? When will police try and disperse them? How will they try and disperse them? And does that get more violent? Uh, these are questions we don't know, but we might find out uh, in the hours, the answers we'll find out in the hours to come, Julia. Matt, have you managed to speak to any of the security forces there? Are they giving you any indication of just how long they're willing to allow people to remain there? And are you also seeing more people joining? Because I assume in the past couple of hours, people have left the office, they've left work. And if they want to join these protests, then they're doing so. Yeah, there's a couple, there's, there's two main protest sections, kind of both of them are, are in very important parts of central Hong Kong here. Uh, in terms of the numbers growing, I don't think we're seeing that. I think the people that are there right now, they're pretty much there to stay. I don't know how many will disperse over the next couple hours. They don't seem to be growing. They don't seem to be joined by, let's say, your average uh, white-collar worker who's in his or her 40 or 50s. These are generally younger kids, maybe 20 at max 30 years old, but they're certainly a younger crowd. In terms of how long police are going to let them stay there, that's anybody's guess at this point. They continually say they've been as restrained as possible, as they put it, throughout the day. There's certainly, uh, you know, you could have differing opinions on that, uh, whether they needed to use tear gas or not. But in terms of how long they're going to let them stay there, we don't know. What I think, though, the general consensus is that they don't want a repeat of 2014. You'll remember that's when these streets, some of these same streets in central Hong Kong, were occupied during the last round of protests for almost 80 days. I don't think think that the authorities here want to see that again. So how long they're willing to tolerate what's going on behind me uh, is very much an open question still. Matt, you and I have discussed over the last 24 hours when we were talking about this yesterday, do these protests make a difference? I mean, the chief of executive, Carrie Lam, accused of betraying Hong Kong here, but she's kind of caught between mm -hmm. the devil and the deep here. The protesters, the people are worried about the implications of this bill and on what it will mean for China's influence. The Chinese, of course, pushing them to, to to pass this law. What's her options here? Yeah, you, you put it you put it well. I mean she's stuck between a rock and a hard place and there's a lot of people who would say that she didn't even really need to push this law to this point, that if she wanted to, she could have just extradited people to China. Uh, you know, she could have released them anyway. So there's a lot of people who are questioning her tactics here, whether this was a good idea or not. But the fact is, we're here now. And so she has to figure out what to do. She's shown no signs of backing down. If she did, she might look incredibly weak. But if she continues to push for this law and these people continue to have the momentum behind them, then it's unclear where this ultimately goes. I think most people would say it will eventually go the way the Hong Kong government leadership wants it to, that they can probably hold out longer than these protesters can, but it certainly doesn't help Hong Kong's international image. I mean, right, right, we're in the middle of skyscrapers. These are major multinational corporations that are based here, and those people were looking down on these protests all day long. I mean, this would be like having a giant pr protest in the middle of Wall Street like we saw, you know, in 2010, 2011. So this is not good for Hong Kong's image. Carrie Lam knows that, but, you know, this is her reality now, and she's stuck with it exactly what investors were looking at and the international community clearly watching this very closely but it also has implications for the relationship between the Hong Kong government and mainland China too. 
Matt Rivers, great job. Thank you so much for that. And we'll watch this over the coming hours. All right, let's get some more context. Joining me now from uh, Hong Kong is David Sweek. He's a professor at uh, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and the director of its Center on China's Transnational Relations. Fantastic to have you with us, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us. As Matt was explaining there, we're in a situation now where the public are frightened, they're angry, they're out on the streets protesting, but Carrie Lam, the chief executive, is is caught between the Chinese government and and her own people in Hong Kong. What does she do here for the best? Can I I challenge that a little bit? I, I I I think this is a situation of her own making. I'm not an apologist for China, but I, I, there's no proof that China called her and said, do this. The, the, the stories around Hong Kong are much more that she, she got sympathetic to this uh, young woman who was killed in Taiwan, or even that some people have tried to set her up. But she's the one who made the decision, I think, to uh, introduce the extradition bill. And Beijing has no choice but to back her up. And, and, you know, I think that she's she's the, never underestimate the ability of the leaders of Hong Kong. And we've seen it, particularly with C.H. Tong in 2003, C.Y. Long in 2012 and 2014 during the you know, creating Occupy. And then this to really make stupid decisions. And hers is a really stupid decision. And if her job was to make Hong Kong economically viable after 2014 and resolve economic crises that people felt were at the core of this, such as housing, unemployment, retirement, um, all kinds of things, even work on the greater Bay Area. The last thing I think that Beijing really wanted to see was this kind of political crisis. You know, the context is also that you've got the trade war with the United States and the United States could react. The United States could react to this, Julia, with uh, taking away the Hong Kong Policy Act. Uh, The president at a, you know, with a pen can just end the privileges that Hong Kong has in its trading with the United States. So I don't see Beijing. I don't see Beijing starting this. But I would say that Beijing is a player in this in the sense that it's fear of Beijing that drives the people of Hong Kong to take to the streets like this. If you're right, David, no, I I, I understand exactly what you said. And I think your explanation here is very important. Um, If what you've said is correct, then Carrie Lam doesn't really have any choice here. Surely if she's she's almost forced the Chinese government at a very pivotal time, as you mentioned, to back her stance on this. If she backs down at this stage and says, look, this was a mistake, we'll rethink this, um, perhaps that's the only path forward. But then she risks looking weak in front of the people yeah, and she's, she's finished. back down. I think she's finished. I think she's finished anyway, Julia. Um, right. Uh, I think that she'll never, you know, she, could she survive till the end of her term? Maybe. But if we look at what happened to C.H. Tung, the, pre, the first um, uh, chief uh, uh, executive, C.Y. Long, was not allowed to run again. Um, she's not going to be running for a second term because of the mismanagement of this. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I think the best thing would be if she could somehow say, look, I really underestimated the anger and the hostility. But that's hard for her to say because it's she underestimated the anger and hostility at Beijing. And she can't say that Beijing's legal system doesn't work very well. But that's what mm. people in Hong Kong are most concerned about, as you've heard. You know, you know that it's the extradition and to be put into the Chinese legal system. And while the Chinese legal system has made significant improvements, um, it's not good enough 
and not the courts are not independent enough for people in Hong Kong to feel that they want to go on trial up there. Yeah, it's 50 years of legal autonomy that there are people are afraid is, is under threat here. Professor, wait two seconds. Sure. I just want to just play some of the comments that the Hong Kong chief executive Carrie Lam made earlier. She gave an interview to local media responding to the protests and her critics that accused her of betrayal. Listen in. They say I sold out Hong Kong. How could I? I was born here and I grew up here with everyone. The love I have for this place has led me to sacrifice a lot personally. So, David, to go back to what we were discussing there, that the threat that, that China represents here or doesn't represent in your mind and actually your suggestion no, that they that just they got don't. caught up I, in the mix. I was not, well, I wasn't okay. saying that they don't represent a threat. What I was saying was I don't think but that on this, this is issue, they necessarily triggered. But go ahead, on this issue. Yeah, on, on this issue, I was going to ask if we're overestimating then the threat that China poses here. Well... You know, if you're, if you're, there's a couple ways that, that if you're an individual here in Hong Kong, I mean, the process, if you get, you'll get a lawyer on, I'm sure at some point, who will describe, you know, what the, what the process would be for the extradition. And what would happen is Beijing would then say um, to, to the courts in Hong Kong that we think that this person is guilty of a crime. And then the courts in Hong Kong or the judge in Hong Kong will, will look at the, the, the information sent down from Beijing which people could say could be doctored, right? And he will have to, he or she will have to say, well, yes or no. If he says maybe or, or yes, carries the one who then has to say, okay, send them up. Now, people are very concerned that uh, uh, people who are politically active could be found guilty of economic crimes. There are businessmen down here right. who are involved in politics and they can be accused of a crime. Uh, uh, somehow so they did something on the mainland. We've had the booksellers have been sent up. No, there's all kinds of things that you could accuse politically active people of. Um, uh, and then based on that, the, the courts down here may have little choice. And Kerry doesn't seem to be uh, sort of game to stop them. The other thing that comes along with this, though, also, Julia, which I haven't heard mentioned, is, you know, there's a thing called Article 23, which is a law that Hong Kong is supposed to pass, which involves four potential crimes for people in Hong Kong, and one of those is subversion. And if you get caught, you know, judged to be guilty of subversion here, will the Beijing government then be able to say to the people of you know, courts in Hong Kong, look, that person has been judged of subversion in Hong Kong, we want them up here, and then, in fact, will that become a way for people to be sent up to the mainland? So, you know, Hong Kong people are very nervous about this. Uh, and I think that it's a real problem that Kerry couldn't understand that. And I think it's a real deficiency in the ability of the, Hong, the Beijing government to understand the way that Hong Kong people feel, their fears, their, their sense of separate sense of identity, their, their mistrust. You know, uh, they just don't understand it. And I think Kerry somehow misjudged the fact that trying to do this was going to trigger such a strong explosion among the Hong Kong people. And once the, fat, once the million came out, then in some ways she was silly to think that she could just ignore it and that the young people wouldn't take to the streets again.
Right. Well, it looks like it's in everyone's interest here for her make, to uh, make a graceful exit or at least step down or step away from yeah. this situation as best she can. The question is, can she achieve that? Fantastic well, to chat really to you. Well, it's really a problem for Reed. the... Yeah, yeah it's a problem for everybody yeah. and for China at this moment. David, yeah, we sure, have to leave sure. it there, though. I would keep you talking okay. if I could. Thank you so much okay, for, uh, for joining us Cheers. on the show. All right, All right bye -bye. let's move on. I want to uh, bring you up with uh, up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Boris Johnson has officially launched his bid to become the next British Prime Minister. The Conservative leadership candidate is promising to unite the country, deliver on Brexit and defeat the opposition leader, Jeremy Corbyn. We can get Brexit done and we can win. We can unite our country and our society. And that is why I'm standing to be leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister. Because this contest is not chiefly about any one person or even about the Conservative Party. It is the opening salvo in a battle to restore faith in our democracy. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But still to come, electric surge, Elon Musk talks up Tesla shares and deep trouble over deep fakes. Now Mark Zuckerberg himself has been targeted. All that to come. And we'll get back to Hong Kong, of course, for the latest there. Stay with us. You're watching First Move. Welcome back to First Move. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing pre-market for U.S. stocks. We do remain on target for a lower open. As you can see, that's a look at the picture here for the futures. The main edge averages finished pretty flat on Tuesday, though tilted to the downside. Put, a, put some context on this. Still posting solid gains for the month, all of them up by around 5%. We've had U.S. inflation numbers out this morning, and we can call them investor-friendly, I think. We saw prices rising just 0.1% in May as energy prices came under pressure. CPI, or core price, is now up some 1.8% year over year, so below that 2% Fed target. The number arguably gives the Fed increased flexibility to cut rates if it believes a so-called insurance rate cut is needed soon. We'll talk this through with Krishna Mamani of Invesco after the market open. But now I want to bring you up to speed with some individual stocks that we're watching pre-market. Tesla gaining almost 3% at this moment. This after an upbeat forecast from its CEO, Elon Musk said, quote, absolutely not in response to concerns that there is a broader demand problem at Tesla. He also said the company had, quote, a decent shot at a record quarter on every level. Peter Valdez de Pina has more. Well, Peter, didn't we see a 31 percent drop in, in demand in the first quarter? So if you want to break some records, you've got some uh, some pretty stiff competition to beat in terms of uh, a pickup in demand here. Yes, he's got quite a pendulum to swing back the other way. That's of course, he's always said that it's really not, it's really a supply problem and a logistics problem, building and delivering the cars. Once they get that set, he says the demand for the car is there and it is selling relatively well. Certainly, according uh, compared to electric cars, it's selling uh, still quite well um, these days. I see a number of them on the road myself around here in New York. So. And one thing he's really pushing on uh, for consumers is to remind them about the self-driving car plans Tesla has, uh, that we would make these cars through an over-the-air update uh, uh, capable, he says, of autonomous driving uh, sometime next year. So he's saying that would be another reason to buy their cars. He spent a lot of time talking about the things, though, as you point out, that aren't material. And we didn't get any numbers 
as far as uh, the belief that he can break records across the board here. Again, are we getting distracted by things like autonomous vehicle technology when actually simply investors just want to see them coming up with the goods here quarter by quarter? Yeah, I think investors would really like to hear him say, look, you know, we really, the de- demand is strong. We can demonstrate that. We've got all the logistic problems. They want to see what's up with the factory in, in China. Yeah, I don't think investors are really into this whole autonomous, most of them. Some of them are very excited about the autonomous driving thing. I think for the most part, you're right. People just want to see, look, let's just get the basics worked out right now, get the cars built, delivered, and really see for sure where the customer demand is even as incentives for the cars are beginning to drop down. That's where the concern is. Incentives from the government tax breaks are are in the diminishing phase now. So these cars really have to stand on their own. Yeah, all the technology is very exciting, but you've got to show that you can sell the cars first. Peter Valdez-Dapina, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on. Facebook's policy on fake videos is being put to the test after a so-called deep fake video of the company's CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, was posted on Instagram. Watch this. Imagine this for a second. One man with total control of billions of people's stolen data, all their secrets, their lives, their futures. I owe it all to Spectre. Spectre showed me that whoever controls the data controls the future. Last month, Facebook refused to take down a doctored video of Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Donny O'Sullivan joins me now. Donny, wow and awkward is all I can say when you've refused to take something down like that and then your own CEO appears. The voice wasn't quite right, but this is pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. And this this video, the the deep fake video of Mark Zuckerberg, had not gone viral on Instagram or on Facebook. The artist who made the video uh, created it as a test of Facebook's policies. They wanted to see, you know, you won't take down a video of Nancy Pelosi, but will you take down a video of your own CEO who appears to say something that he never actually said? Facebook told us last night that they are not taking down the video, uh, but some might say it's easy for them to say it in this instance where it's sort of clearly a fake. But if it's a video, you know, where he's potentially, uh, you know, being shown to speak at an investor meeting or an internal Facebook meeting, you could imagine uh, the situation might be a little different. You know, how they decide to treat this fake video of their own CEO is going to set a huge precedent, I think, for for handling these going forward. You also got hold of some deep fakes related to presidential candidates. I mean, this is mind-blowing. Talk me through what you discovered and how on earth we tackle this going into the 2020 elections. This is a whole new complication. Absolutely. So you can see how the Zuckerberg deepfake could potentially in the future cause uh, trouble for corporations. But also here in the U.S., the U.S. intelligence community has told Congress that they are quite concerned by this new technology could be used in future disinformation campaigns against the United States. I want to show you a fake a deep fake video of President Donald Trump's face being mapped onto Alec Baldwin as he plays him on Saturday Night Live. Have a look. She and Obama stole my microphone. They took it to Kenya. They took my microphone to Kenya and they broke it and now it's broken. And you hear that? It's picking up somebody sniffing here. I think it's her sniffs. She's been sniffing all night. Testing, testing, Gina, Gina. 
So there you can see the video on the left is the deep fake where they have taken Trump's actual face and put it onto Alec Baldwin. Um, now, this was made by a team of researchers in uh, California. They are making this so they can test a detection system which they plan to build in advance of the 2020 election, which they hope will be able to detect any deep fakes that are candidates. We spoke to one of the people behind that program, Hani Farid. What is Trump's style? Trump's style is very um, consistent. He basically, he doesn't actually move very much. His eye movements, his eyebrows are extremely static. He tends not to move his head a lot. This is the only part of his face that really moves a lot right here. We are going to track the facial expressions and the head movements. The laser beams coming out of the eyes are showing you where the eyes are looking. The red dots that you see are showing me how is the mouth moving, how are the eyebrows moving. By the end of this calendar year, that is the goal is that we will have most, if not all of the candidates fingerprinted. So you can see there that people are trying to get ahead of this problem. It was clear in 2016 with Russian trolls and bots and all the misinformation that America was not prepared for what was coming. Uh, experts say that this could be the new wave of disinformation and people like Hani Farid are trying to prepare us for it. Yeah, it's frighteningly easy to achieve. I think that's my observation and actually frighteningly difficult to distinguish. Um, wow, Tony, great job. Great reporting. Thank you for that, Donia Sullivan. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, you are selling out Hong Kong. That's the message from thousands of protesters. We'll be back in Hong Kong watching for the latest there. And, of course, the market open in a couple of minutes' time. Stay with us. You're watching CNN. First move live from the New York Stock Exchange. A colourful backdrop there for the opening bell just a few moments ago, though not good in terms of direction here. We were expecting a lower open for stocks today, and that's what we've got. The June rally, some 5% gains a month today, taking a bit of a breather here. It seems tech, as you can see, under the most pressure here, but we're just talking at two tenths of 1%. What else this morning? Well, we got an investor-friendly reading on inflation today, yet U.S. CPI numbers posting the smallest monthly gain since January of this year, very much tied to what we've seen in energy prices, of course, and the pullback there. And it's not stopping anytime soon, it seems. Oil having a pretty rough session, as you can see. Brent and WTI both down around at 2% on renewed oversupply concerns. We've got industry numbers on inventories this morning rising at an unexpectedly high level last week. Official U.S. numbers are going to be out in around an hour's time. All right, I want to return now to Hong Kong and the breaking news that we saw over there in the last few hours, where local hospitals now say at least 22 people have been injured during mass demonstrations against a controversial extradition bill. If passed, as we've described earlier on the show, it would allow criminal suspects to be tried in mainland China. Heavily armed police have been firing tear gas, water cannons and pepper spray to disperse the crowd of protesters. Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam has spoken to local media responding to the protests and also her critics. They say I sold out Hong Kong. How could I? I was born here and I grew up here with everyone. The love I have for this place has led me to sacrifice a lot personally. 
Ivan Watson is in Hong Kong for us. Ivan, uh, the backdrop behind you seems a lot calmer than we saw uh, a few hours ago, but still plenty of protesters there and the security forces still in attendance too. Talk us through what you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of a lull here in this part of Hong yeah. Kong. But as you can see, there are still uh, thousands of protesters behind here, uh, defiant demonstrators manning these kind of uh, makeshift barricades that they've established. Uh, the tear gas that we saw on this very boulevard not long ago has subsided for now, and now you actually have riot police so just a short distance away who are... It's been a long day of back and forth here and uh, of... Uh, kind of engaging and in sometimes some occasions violently engaging with the demonstrators but as you can see the tensions for the moment have calmed down just a little bit but the standoff is still here and that that fundamental question of what the city authorities are going to do what the demonstrators are going to do is still up very much in the air they have shown that they are very much opposed to this controversial extradition law that the leader of the city government has stood behind. She has defended it saying, hey, it closes legal loopholes for criminals, for fugitives, whereas the demonstrators here fear it could expose them to the very opaque, sometimes very capricious judicial system not far away in mainland China. And the local authorities essentially disregarded this massive protest the likes of which I've never seen in this city on Sunday, where, according to some estimates, one in seven people from the city's population were out in the streets peacefully opposing the extradition law. Well, look what's happened just a few days later. Tear gas, barricades, and in the short term, the demonstrators have succeeded in forcing lawmakers to postpone today's planned debate on this very controversial law. This has been a mass show of distrust for the city government and, by extension, the central government in mainland China. Ivan, we just heard some comments there from Carrie Lam, of course, the chief executive, saying, look, we're standing firm and we're going to push this through. What are the protesters saying to you? You called it a standoff earlier. Are they saying to you that they're going to continue to come out and protest so long as this bill remains an option here and an option for the law to be passed here? I just I struggle to see how this ends at this stage. Yeah, n none of us really know. And the scenes are very reminiscent of the standoff, the Occupy movement that we saw in these same streets nearly five years ago during the so-called umbrella movement and that lasted for nearly 80 days until it petered out. Uh, we don't know what will happen this time around. Some of the protesters are people who were children five years ago and have told me they were too young to come out and protest five years ago. Others are veterans of that previous period. There is no one leader of this opposition movement. We saw a rather unprecedented coalition of opposition in Sunday's peaceful protest, religious groups, business interests, labor unions, and students. Today has mostly been younger people, though we've also seen some protesters come after they finish their day's work and join into this protest movement. But where will it go? Many of the demonstrators we've talked to have said that they realize that in the end of the day, 
they probably will not win. After all, this is a city of 7 million people facing off against the might of communist China, the world's second biggest economy, and a government that abuses human rights at a level on the other side of the internal border that, that Hong Kong has never really seen before. Ivan Watson in Hong Kong. Thank you so much for joining us on that. All right, joining me now, Krishna Mamani. He is the uh, CIO of OFI at Invesco. Great to have you with us, Krishna. Pleasure. I want to talk to you about this because we've been debating on the show the importance of Hong Kong as a, a conduit for financial flows in China. When you see this kind of behavior, in a metropolis like, like Hong Kong, it makes investors nervous. Oh, of course. This is very disconcerting for sure. Uh, you know, our hope is that there's patience and, and uh, a little bit of understanding on both sides and this doesn't escalate to a much higher level. Uh, having said that, I think it's, it's also worthwhile noting that uh, you know, Hong Kong is part of China and the likelihood that it, uh, it kind of gets to a different level in terms of what laws they can pass, it's very difficult to see how all of that happens. We've had some lively debate on the show, uh, some back and forth over whether or not China actually wanted to see this law passed in the first place. It can extradite if it wants to anyway. As you said, Hong Kong is is part of China, even if there is a semi-autonomous legal system in, in, in operation there. The timing for China, given the tensions with the United States right now, is awkward, quite frankly. It's very awkward, to be, for sure. Uh, again, I, I think the impact of all of that uh, uh, on, on Asian equities, Chinese equities, and EM equities is definitely, definitely negative. Having said that, I think there's a way to get out of all of this, and I'm sure they will, they will find a way. Uh, and at the end of the day, what would matter for investors far more is whether we can reach a deal with the United States on the trade front or not. Yes. At, at the end of the day, that is really the most important issue facing the global economy. Our hope is that at some point we'll reach some sort of a settlement, whether that is G20 meeting or down the road, uh, remains to be seen. At the moment, though, we know what the impact of the trade te uh, tension is. You know, it's roughly, let's say, three-tenths to a half percentage point off of U.S. GDP, which is not a good thing, but not the end of the world either. It's not catastrophically bad, and uh, the U.S. economy was slowing. It just slows itself uh, some more. Uh, the, the impetus for the Fed to act in this scenario increases meaningfully. So they will take concrete action, and hopefully relatively soon, to calm things down. You think they'll cut rates? Uh, they will cut rates, whether that is, in, I don't think it's in June or July, probably later in the year, but they probably won't cut rates as much as the market may be expecting. So the market's thinking of three rate cuts, and yes. I don't think three in 2019 is really on the cards. By the end of 2020, that may indeed come out, but not, not in 2019. If the market doesn't get what it wants, though, even in July, fine June perhaps is a little bit early, but if the Fed don't decide to cut rates in July, are we going to have some kind of broader tantrum or is communicating that the Fed stands ready and if Jay Powell stands up there and says, look, you know, we've got this under control and we'll watch very closely, is that going to be enough? Well, so I, I think what is going to happen in our view is that data is going to start improving in the second half. Right. And in that context, then the Powell can come out and articulate as to why they are not doing it and the markets will buy it. I think if the data doesn't recover and he doesn't do anything, then it's a totally different uh, a ball game altogether. 
I mean, there's so many potential conflicts and the timing here, we've discussed this week on First Move, is very tricky with the G20 and the hopes sure. for the president's meeting there and then the timing of, of the Fed. What are investors asking you at this moment? And are they still saying to you, look, we want to put money to work here, we want to invest in these markets? And are you still saying, look, we've been telling you for a while, our medium-term call is we like EM, stick with it? Yeah, so I, I think investors are very worried yeah. for sure, uh, and trade is the top of the list. Having said that, I think if you look at the market action, they recognize that the underlying strength in the economy is still decent. Do they? Or do they just think Jay Powell's going to ride to the rescue? Well, so I, I think it's a combination yeah. of the two. You know, it's, it's first and foremost that we are not getting into a recessionary environment. So growth is slowing down for sure, but it's moderating. And in that environment, if you have good policy action from the Fed, that definitely helps risky assets, equities in particular, go up. What is most important for emerging markets is China stimulating its economy. Right. That's coming. And the dollar not appreciating. I think if the Fed cuts, then the dollar stops appreciating. And I think that combination can help the EM in a meaningful way. What happens if the Chinese yuan depreciate? Well, so that's, that's a very interesting question. I think the depreciation of the Chinese yuan is effectively China making the trade tension world's problem rather than just Chinese problem. Yes, exporting think, the problem. Exporting the problem to the rest of the EM. I, I think from a political standpoint, it doesn't get them what they need, which is a, a resolving this issue and resolving this issue relatively quickly. So I think for now, they are probably not going to depreciate the yuan, but it's a decision that they have to make. If they do that, then, then again, we are in a different, uh, different playing field altogether. Yeah. It's, uh, it's an interesting time, that's for sure. Krishna Mamani, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank the you. Chief Investment Officer, OFI at Invesco. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But up next, Elon Musk gives Tesla shares an electric jolt. Can he deliver on his promises, though? We'll discuss. Stay with us. back to first move a decent shot at a record quarter that was the upbeat forecast from the tesla ceo who also made it clear he didn't want to rehash the challenges of the past year but are tesla's woes really behind it joining me is a woman who says they very much are at least for the long term tasha keeney is an analyst at ark invest one of the most uh, bullish supporters of tesla out there the firm has a six thousand dollar five-year target for the stock that's the case scenario. Let's uh, let's be clear on that. 4,000 yeah. to 6,000. Tasha, great to have you with us. Good to see you, Julia. Okay. Anything in this shareholder meeting that you want to flag or should we move on and talk about other things? Because I always think there's a short-term, long-term bull bear uh, right. disconnect. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think too much came, that too much exciting news came out of this meeting. I think investors are happy with it. You know, we've seen the stock up today. Yeah. Um, Musk talked a lot about this demand problem. He says there's no demand problem, which is certainly what we, we see happening. Um, but not too, too, too much new, no. So you've had some pretty fierce pushback from bears of Tesla, and I call it my Marmite stock. You either love this or you, or you hate this stock. You released your model and said, guys, mm -hmm. if you want to see what our assumptions are and, and have a play with the model, you go for it. Was that good in hindsight or was that a waste of time because the, the critics were still attacking? You know, at, at ARC, we, we try to be as transparent as possible. Yes. We publish all of our research online. 
And um, you know, even the sell side, we released a model that's dynamic. Yeah. Um, and and really, no one does that. So so we were happy to pioneer that. Um, we got a lot of pushback. You know, there's always <laughs> a lot of critics for Tesla. Um, and and really, that's actually what we want because we we want to make sure that our assumptions are correct. Robust. We want to battle test them, and we actually got some good feedback on the model. So I, I think we're you know we we would do it again. I want to go to the demand question here because just to look at your your bear case here right now for the global EV market, the electric vehicle market, Tesla has a 17% market share. You say okay, in our worst case, we'll take that right down to to 6% market share. Talk me through some of your assumptions and how you then translate to a share price over the coming years, because I do think this is important when we're worried about demand. Yes. So I, I think one of the, the biggest differentiators with what, how we see the future going for Tesla and, and what the bears see is um, we think the electric vehicle market will surprise. So we're estimating that there will be 26 million EVs sold globally in 2023. Um, so in our bear case, we actually take their market share down by two thirds yes. from what it is today. And it's because EVs will just be such a large market. Um, and this is really because battery cost declines are, batteries are declining in such a way that in the next five years, an ICE will become more expensive than an electric car on a like-for-like -like basis. And that's what's going to drive demand. But, so everyone who says, look, there's other cars coming on, they're going to face fierce competition, you're going, yeah, we get it. We're going to take the market share that we anticipate down to 6%. We're incorporating the, the loss of tax credits, the increased competition, all that's encompassed in your model. Yes, actually, we, this is not accounting for tax credits. So actually, if credits were to happen that would help Tesla, it could be even higher or, or help other companies. Um, we don't model subsidies. The other big question, I think, is the autonomous technology and some other car companies saying, look, he's being too aggressive on his estimates of how quickly this will come on. I think one of the things that confuses me is you estimate regulators require 1 billion to 10 billion miles of data to prove that the system has a lower error rate than, than humans in order to get regulators comfortable with it. I mean, that's a huge range of assumptions between 1 billion and, and, and 10 billion miles of data. And is that actually on real roads or is it on highways? Because the conditions are so different. Yes. So, so we think um, this is, it is an important distinction to say that this is real road data. Yeah, and, and just the fact that we think it'll be in the billions means that Tesla's really one of the only companies that's uniquely set up to provide that data. Every other company that's testing autonomous cars is testing it in specific areas. They have maybe hundreds of test cars at best. Not even Waymo? Um, Waymo has hundreds of cars on the road. I mean, they actually probably have the largest yes. test fleet, but it's nothing compared to Tesla's customer fleet, um, which is hundreds of thousands. So it's, so. The, it's the combination of having cars out there and also having the technology here that, that matters. Exactly. Is there anything that could derail all the critics, all the criticisms, the short-term woes that car analysts come, and I know you guys look at this as technology analysts, and it's far broader and more encompassing. Is there anything that Elon Musk or Tesla could do that would change your mind? You know, certainly if Musk left the company before they reached full autonomy, um, we'd take that into consideration. We think it's important that he, he stays at the helm for them to get there. Um, I, I think in general, um, the, the timing of, of when sort of these breakpoints happen are, are very hard to predict. Um, so let's say, you know, they're six months late on feature complete for autopilot, what, what they say they need to get to have all the autonomous features ready. Yeah. Um, that's why we look out over five years. Because even if we're off by 20%, if the market is large enough, it's still worth investing in today. Yeah. 
It won't stop the critics, but it's great to have the conversation. Tasha Keeney, brilliant to have you on. Thank you so much, and we'll get you back. All right, up next, phone signals. Or will the UK allow Huawei into its 5G network? Well, we'll speak to the man making the call after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Boris Johnson, considered the frontrunner to replace British Prime Minister Theresa May, launched his campaign with a promise to deliver Brexit by Halloween at any cost. The question of what the cost will be is haunting some people in Britain's growing tech sector in particular, which has been gathering for UK Tech Week. We can join Anna Stewart with more. Oh, Anna, Boris Johnson's leadership campaign and the approach of the UK of Huawei. You've got 90 seconds. You go for it, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> 90 seconds, dear me, Julia. Right, well, Huawei is obviously a big focus here because, frankly, artificial intelligence will rely so heavily on 5G rolling out. And that is under risk because of the government not yet making a decision about Huawei. Will it be allowed to be part of the infrastructure of the future 5G network? Won't it? They are making that decision. It's likely to get delayed until Theresa May's successor. On the one hand, you've got the mobile operators who would like a decision quickly. They'd also probably like to use Huawei because it's already in their infrastructure. On the other, the pressure from the United States. And that's where I started. I asked the minister who heads up this department, who will ultimately make this decision, how much Donald Trump's uh, urging of allies to ban Huawei is weighing on this decision. Take a listen. The telecom system is hugely interconnected, so you can find Huawei equipment with a large number of American components. So decisions made in the U.S. administration, of course, have to be factored in, and we're doing that. But it will take time, I think, to make sure that we've got our judgments right before we make an announcement. But I'm absolutely conscious that the sector wants to know what it should be doing, so we'll do that as soon as we can. Stewart's no time for Boris Johnson, but fascinating to watch on Huawei anyway. And we've got plenty of weeks, I fear, to talk about Boris Johnson. Thank you so much for that, <laughs> Anna Stewart there. All right. Uh, the market's under a bit of pressure this morning. I'll be back in, uh, what, a couple of hours at time to bring you the latest. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Stay with CNN for our breaking news coverage of the protests in Hong Kong. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.